Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Each week on the pod, we aim to bring you fantastic interviews with our deadly friends in the writing industry, from authors to booksellers, publishers, editors, and everyone in between. We'll talk with these knowledgeable folks about writing tips, author and reader events, and changes in the current industry landscape. For our readers on the run, we'll feature short stories every week designed to delight our busy readers during commutes, while walking, or any time a great short story would be appreciated. In addition to all this fabulous stuff, we're also offering prizes to our listeners at our Dead to Rights Facebook page. Listen for our weekly contest questions, visit the page, and answer in the comments sections to qualify to win. So hop onto your favorite listening device and subscribe today at iTunes or at Google Play. Also, a heads up to our faithful listeners, we'll be bringing the Dead to Rights podcast to our Carrick Publishing YouTube channel in the very near future. So, while you're subscribing and listening, please be sure to rate the podcast. This helps others who may be interested in the writing industry to find us. Today we have a fabulous interview lined up with Nate Henley. Nate is a freelance journalist and the author of over a dozen true crime books. Nate will talk with us about his experiences and what brought him to the world of true crime literature. But before we introduce Nate, I'd like to tell you this and that about myself, and also read to you from my own collection on short crime stories. The story we'll feature today for our readers on the run is a haunting little number I call Spring's Last Skate. It features two young children on a brilliantly beautiful and forever memorable late winter day that ends in horror. So stay with us, deadly friends, as I bring you my reading of Spring's Last Skate from North on the Yellowhead and Other Crime Stories, Carrick Publishing, 2016. Spring's Last Skate Northern Quebec in March, where birch trees stand snowy white, against a sky that is bluer than sapphire, more pure in its color than the blue of Martha's eyes. Clean snow crunched under my boots, its surface just beginning to surrender to the sun's caress. Off to our left, a ditch transformed itself into a tinkling stream, fed by rivulets from the melting banks. Spring thaw, nature's concession, One more chance at life in a region that spends too much energy on dying. Martha reached for my hand. My red mitten was torn at the thumb, but I didn't mind. The fabric was soaked anyway from playing in the snow. It smelled of wet wool, the deep organic musk of animal. My sister's touch was warm, as always, even through the fabric. I let her lead me home, despite the brilliant sunshine that called on us to keep playing, despite the cheerful voices of children at the rink across the street. Days like that don't come along often. Their rarity burrows into the gray matter that secures our memories, staking out permanent pockets filled with mental photographs we can recall at any time, regardless of the slippery passing of the years. Images to hold forever, 
a black rock jutting from the snow, a jack pine bent against frozen clouds, a worn mitten offering a gay dash of red in the sunlight, the stuff of recollection. Hurry up, Doris, Martha said, pulling at my arm. I knew the drill. At eight and six years old, respectively, Martha and I enjoyed more freedom than many children. Our village in the far north still believed crime was something you watched on television, so long as the cable didn't go out. We were free to run without supervision, skating, crafting snowmen, and building forts in the little woods from bits of rotting lumber dumped by lazy contractors at the edge of the larger forest. There was one caveat to our boundless freedom. We must not be late for meals. Le déjeuner, lunch, would be ready at noon sharp. The undeniable pleasure of dallying in the morning air was not worth our mother's annoyance. I did my best to keep up, short legs hindered by the snow pants we were forced to wear. They, too, were soaked through, but our mother would toss our overclothes into the dryer while we ate, so they'd be ready for us to wear by afternoon. Martha let go of my hand. Wait for me, I said. She relented, taking my hand again and pulling me toward our house. We paused at the driveway. It had been plowed earlier in the week, but the previous day's fresh snow and the blue-gray shadow of a spruce still showed our childish footprints from the morning. Our mother would probably ask us to shovel the drive before the afternoon became too cold. I saw, but didn't really notice, the larger prints, blue-white impressions moving first to the front door, then back again. Our father had died in the fall. Our mother did not entertain guests, unless you counted a handful of neighbor ladies who came in rotating shifts to drink coffee. They were good women who knew the erosion loneliness could cause on a spirit. They did their best to make sure our mother did not become a casualty of her own company. She never complained, but we knew she missed Dad. Her eyes would light up when we told her of a pending school concert or a parent-teacher meeting, anything to break the monotony of endless evenings spent in adult limbo with only two small girls for conversation. Forgetting it was Saturday, I assumed the boot prints belonged to the mailman, a great burly Quebecois with the nature of a jolly lumberjack who had a smiling wife and three children of his own. His oldest was being scouted by the NHL. Look, Martha said. She pointed at the prince. They led to the front door, back to the drive, stopped about halfway down the driveway, then turned and went into the backyard. I nodded, thinking it was strange. But we were only children, after all, innocent to the possibilities a pair of heavy footprints in the snow could imply. Hungry, we opened the unlocked front door and stepped into the hallway, careful to strip our wet outerwear before following the rich smell of barley into the kitchen. Your cheeks are rosy, our mother said, dishing hot soup into bowls. Eat up quickly. This will warm you. Then you can go outside again. 
My snow pants are wet, I said. I expected her to hop up and throw them into the dryer, but instead she said, You can wear your other pair. That way you won't have to wait. Now eat up. My other pair was too small, but I knew better than to argue. Even after my father's death in the height of her grief, our mother was nothing if not determined. She was a loving, gentle woman who filled her days with cooking, cleaning, sewing, and caring for her girls. Just the same, she brooked no nonsense from either of us. We ate our soup with slices of fresh-baked bread, which Mum buttered quickly, and sipped our hot chocolate. Come on, she said. You're missing the whole day. Both of you, go wash your faces and use the bathroom. Take your skates and head over to the rink. She smiled, but there was something anxious in her blue eyes. I didn't make much of it. Six-year-olds are not known for their empathy. Besides, since our father's fatal heart attack in September, anxiety had become a common visitor in our house. She tucked me into the tight snow pants while Martha dressed herself. Then she shooed us out the front door, not even pausing to glance at the heap of wet things on the floor. Stay out for a while, she said. The weather's way too nice to be indoors. Do some skating before the ice gets choppy. We waved. I was wearing a dry coat and a pair of bright yellow mittens Mom had made for me earlier that year. My skates were second-hand, but they looked new and they fit me well. Martha had on a blue nylon coat and a pair of new handmade mittens, lamb's wool, as blue as the March sky, as blue and as innocent as her own eyes. That was the last time we saw our mother alive. Let it rot. And this has been Spring's Last Skate by yours truly, Donna Carrick, which first appeared in Septil and Other Places, my crime collection, and then later appeared in North on the Yellowhead and Other Crime Stories, all brought to you by Carrick Publishing. Before we introduce our deadly friend, author Nate Henley, I'd like to share a little about myself, Donna Carrick, with our listeners. I'm asking you to subscribe to our podcast and to join me every week, so I think you deserve to know something about me. I've always been a writer. At least I've claimed the vocation since the age of six, the first time I wrote a poem for my mother and was proud to see her smile. For most of my literate life, I've written poems and short stories, finally diving into the glamorous world of novel writing back in 1998. My early novels, The Noon God and Golden Fishes, were not in fact the first I wrote. I have a series of unpublished manuscripts in the cupboard, as I'm sure many of my author friends have. We may be born to write, but we are not born able to write well. It takes time, effort, and a passion that goes beyond exhaustion to hone our skills to the point where we can proudly share our product, our art, with the world. So, by the time The Noon God came into creation, I already had four unpublished manuscripts gathering dust. I was thrilled to see The Noon God widely received. The distribution of over 40,000 copies of that novella is something I can still barely get my head around. 
and the five-star Amazon reviews still make me smile in my darkest moments. Gold and Fishes was a labor of love, the story of a Canadian aid worker who travels with a volunteer team to the ravages of post-tsunami Indonesia and Thailand after the Boxing Day disaster of 2004 that claimed the lives of over a quarter million people. The first excellence, Falling's Map, is a thriller set in mainland China, featuring Li Falling, a young Chinese-Canadian adoptee who travels from Canada to the region of her birth. There she discovers murder, kidnapping, organ theft, and corruption at a state level and must help two world-weary Nanning detectives solve the mystery before another toddler is taken. Achieving a modest level of success and the skills required to further this career of mine has been a long-time passion. Working with authors from all over the globe via the indie publishing house Alec and I founded in 2010 has been a source of joy to me. Carrick Publishing has brought me intimacy with our industry that I never would have imagined possible. And now it seems only natural that I work to share that closeness with others, with readers, with fellow authors, and those who, like me, are immersed in this industry of ours. That's why we bring you this podcast, Dead to Rights so we can profile stories and authors, many of whom are already your favorites, but some of whom you might not otherwise get to know. We want to bring them to you in a more intimate manner, allow you to access their thoughts on their work and on the industry we find ourselves working to better. Today, we bring you Nate Henley. Nate is an established fixture in the Canadian crime scene, a freelance journalist, true crime author, and former Vice President of Crime Writers of Canada. Stay with us as we reach out to Nate on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Hello, Donna. Good morning, Nate. How are you this morning? I wanted to talk to you today because I know you've got over a dozen books and articles uh, that are just too many to count. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but you've written for Canadian Metalworking, which is a magazine that's currently owned by people that I worked for for, well, the last 28 years, let's put it that way. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I think when you were when you were writing for them, they were probably owned by Rogers, is that right? Yeah, they've had like multiple ownership changes, and I can't even keep track of them. But it does lead me into what I want to talk to you about, sure, which is uh, you've written hundreds of articles. You've written uh, for trade magazines, including McLean's and uh, the National Post and the Globe and Mail. And uh, is there an essential skill that is needed in article writing that either does or does not lend itself well to writing longer works like your true crime books? And what might uh, you need to unlearn or... Well, not necessarily unlearn, but uh, when you're doing long-form books, um, there's a couple skills you have to kind of adapt, for lack of a better word. The most obvious one is length, because when you're doing a newspaper or magazine article, you know, you're talking a thousand words, right? Yes. You know, it's fairly succinct, Um, whereas my first book... um, which was Edwin Alonzo Boyd about the bank robber, was 30,000 words, which actually is quite short. For it is. Book. That's novella length, right? Yeah, it's novella length, but still, it's 
seemed like, oh my God, like when I was doing it, like that was the biggest thing that sort of surprised me is, oh my goodness, this is so long. Yes. Um, so you, you, you have to sort of change your mindset that um, you don't want to have just a, you know, super succinct 800 word article. You know, you got to be thinking bigger, yes. thinking broader. Um, it does allow you though to add in the kind of color that you kind of don't usually you can't usually put in a newspaper or magazine article. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I went on in detail about Edwin Boyd getting ready to rob his first bank and he put on all this makeup and blah, blah, blah. Oh my God, all the background. Yeah, Yeah, and all this kind of background detail that you normally wouldn't put in, you know, an article in the paper or article uh, in a magazine. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, and I'm a voracious reader of true crime, and I've got to tell you, that background is one of the big draws because people who read true crime, we're we're generally always trying to understand how did these crimes come to be. Right, right. Well, that would be, and this sort of leads into the second uh, big difference of, I don't know if you call it unlearning. When you do a newspaper or magazine article, you know, obviously you do your research, but, um, you know, there's sort of a limit, you know, like you're, you're not expected usually to dig back and, you know, 60 year old newspaper files, that sort of thing. Um, but when you're doing true crime, obviously you do have to do that research. Like you're expected to read, um, books on the same topic, uh, you know, do some searching around like for older newspaper articles. So the research is much more intense. Yes. Um, you can, you know, in a newspaper article, you can get away with saying, you know, Justin Trudeau announced a new tax policy, blah, blah, blah. And here's what he said. And here's what the opposition said. But if you're writing a true crime book about tax policy, obviously you'd have to throw in a lot more background and explain what the policy does and how this somehow triggered the murderer to go out and, you know, kill 50 people, that sort of thing. What promises um, were made and maybe broken right, in the lead up. Right. And... So it's much, much more detailed. Mm-hmm. And like I have spent a fair amount of time, you know, in the Toronto reference library looking at old microfiche. What a great um, library that is, by oh, the way. I got to do a quick plug for the Toronto reference library for yeah, anyone who yeah. may not have visited it. Um, you should, if you're into you're research. Out. You've also written over a dozen full-length books, which is yep. uh, the next the next thing that I want to talk to you about. Sure. In my favorite, one of my favorite genres for sure is true crime, mm-hmm. including Stephen Truscott, The Black Donnellys, which I've read quite a bit about, so I'll be interested to see your take on it too. Sure. I'm going to download your book on The Black Donnellys later today. Oh, and also Dutch Schultz. And by the way, listeners, anytime you hear one of our authors mention one of their books, keep in mind, you can check it out on Amazon or Barnes & Noble any of your favorite retailers, uh, look it up. And chances are it's probably available in e-format as well. So um, I really want you to check out the authors that we're speaking to here. Anyway, this leads me to ask you, Nate, when did your interest in true crime first take hold? And uh, what elements of a crime or a series do you look for? Okay. Um, well, the true crime thing kind of came about a little bit by accident, okay? I had always wanted to write a book. Like, ever since I was, I don't know, in high school. I can understand that. (laughs) Yeah, I had envisioned doing novels, but then, you know, I became a journalist, and I, you know, for years had thought about, I want to write a book, I want to write a book. And I'm a member of the PWAC, which is the Professional Writers Association of Canada, 
and they had an email list. And lo and behold, back in, I think, 2002, they had this email notice that this company called Altitude Publishing from Alberta, they specialized in kind of short, punchy Canadian history, okay? And they were expanding east, kind of the opposite of most, you know, business expansion. And they were looking to get Ontario slash Toronto uh, true stories. And at the time, I, you know, wasn't necessarily a true crime buff, but big article, um, big news story at that time was that this um, bank robber, Edwin Alonzo Boyd, had finally died at age 88. And he had kind of terrorized Toronto in the 50s, headed up something called the Boyd Gang. Um, two of the members murdered a policeman and were subsequently hanged. All this crazy stuff. Um, so I pitched them a book about Edwin Boyd. Mm-hmm. They, they liked the pitch. They asked me to send them a chapter outline, which I did. They liked the chapter outline, and next thing I knew, I had a contract and was writing this book. That's fantastic, Nate. That's so really terrific. They liked, well, then, so long story short, they liked the book, and then they said, we'd like you to do more books, and they kept feeding me topics. Like, they would give me a long list of stuff they wanted to write about. Some of it was not crime-related. Like, at one point, they were talking about me doing a book about Hurricane Hazel. But for some reason, I always seem to end up doing crime stuff Mm -hmm. for them. So I did, like, you know, the Black Donnellys. Then they did a gangster series. I did Al Capone and Dutch Schultz. Mm -hmm. Um, So I sort of fell into the true crime. And then I got a contact from an American company called Greenwood, which is now part of ABC Clio, they saw one of my books, wanted me to write one for them on Bonnie and Clyde. So I went, oh, okay. Um, so I kind of fell into it. I have done some non-crime-related stuff. I did a book about John Lennon, for example. Okay. Um, but I kind of fell into the true crime, and I discovered I really enjoyed it. Well, and of course, John Lennon's story ends with a crime, doesn't that it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's yeah. sort of a true crime thing. It sort of is. Yes, yes. And it sort of ties into kind of my next, your next question. Um, What I discovered with true crime is that it kind of lends itself to some really interesting broader picture reporting. Like Mm -hmm. about, like when I did the Bonnie and Clyde book, I talk about conditions in the 1930s and the Great Depression and, you know, living in the... Do millennials know about the dirty 30s to the extent that they should? That's why I give them a little bit of a history lesson. Yes. I don't assume they know about it, so I just say, you know, okay, stock market crash, Great Depression, you know, a lot of people were poor and rooting for the bad guys, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and there's there's things that that I, 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 I'm going to give you just a little example, just to interject here. Sure. When my father died, mm-hmm. I had to go through his house along with my sister, and um, One of the things I found triggered me back to a memory of when his mother died. When his mother, my grandmother, died, she was staying in our house at the time um, because she was unwell. She had ferreted wads of cash all through her room in little hidden places. Now, my grandmother raised three children alone during the Great Depression. And so she knew what it was to to worry about money. And my father picked that habit up from her. And when I went through his house, I just found these wads of cash. Like, it was just weird. It wasn't. We're not talking a lot of money. My father was a working class man. Right, right. right. But uh, numerous mounds of it. You know. I've heard that's pretty common, actually. 
yeah. people of that age. Yeah, yeah. very, very. Uh, and I don't think that young people understand. So getting back to how you're writing the historical background to a lot of these true crimes. Sorry for having interrupted. No, no, no that's fine. Yeah, it gives, uh, it gives, you, gives me an excuse to do a bit of, you know, history, a little bit of politics, like you're talking about, you know, the various situations of the day, um, and all sorts of interesting sort of social sort of commentary or sociology or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's a very broad genre in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I have tried to avoid in my writing, um, I don't do too many of the, like, uh, super gore kind of true crime stuff. The, the deeply sensational, and I know the ones yeah, you mean. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, if you want to write that stuff, fine, but I'm not into it. Like, yeah. you know, and then I cut her head off kind of thing, you know. Yes, yes. Yes, I know um, the kind of crime you mean. Uh, I was always a fan of Anne Rule, and there weren't many crimes that she wouldn't touch, but she always told them not in a sensational way, but with a great deal of respect. And, right, uh, right, right. Yeah. And, you know, it is possible to tell even the most gruesome story in a sort of straightforward, respectful manner. Um, I just don't, you know, I don't yeah. uh, like writing in that sort of, you know... Uh, There's a true crime. There's a true crime factor, and anybody who's never read a lot of true crime wouldn't get this. But um, even though I'm a true crime buff, there is a limit how much I can read at once. Um, I'll usually read one true crime book and then read five or six fictions or autobiographies. You know, Uh, that's interesting because true crime has a tendency to really taint the soul, and uh, (laughs) then. So I know yeah. what you mean about not wanting to write the more gruesome elements, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing. One thing I liked, um, and why well, I did a couple books for this American publisher, ABC Clio, and they do sort of like textbooks for high schools and junior colleges. Uh, I did some books on organized crime and the mafia, and I did include sections on various legal tools that you know the FBI used or prosecutors used to to get organized crime figures in jail, like the RICO statute. And, wow, that uh, would be really fascinating, and, especially these days, yeah. Yeah, witness, uh, witness protection program, I did a little blurb on that. So it's kind of fun, because mm-hmm. I can write about from the good guys, what they're doing. You know? yes. so that's always, always kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is uh, you had a children's book funnily yes. enough, called The Scrapper. And it's yes. all about uh, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. And yes, it was indeed. nominated for a Red Maple Award in 2007 by the Ontario Library Association. Yes. So that's a big yes. feather in the cap. Uh, and yeah, uh, well, there's a yeah. photo on your website of uh, Monsieur Chrétien holding a copy of your book. Um, that is, yes. Which has to make you feel pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, I actually did two books. It was a co- I did one on Mackenzie King, William Nine Mackenzie King as well. That was um, a company called Jackfruit Press uh, in Toronto, and they had this great idea of doing like children's books on every prime minister, okay, even ones that were only in office, you know, for like a month or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a terrific concept, but they ran out of money, I think. Like I don't know what happened, but they basically went out of business after putting out like maybe eight or nine books or something. Well, I'm glad you won an award before they went out of business. Yeah, yeah, I was pleased about that. It, um, it did teach me a lesson in humility, though, because I went to, because I'd been nominated, I went to this OLA, Ontario Library Association, conference down at Metro Center, and it was like all these kids and all these, you know, book authors, and they set me up at a table, 
And all these kids kept coming up to me and asking for my autograph. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, I've really made it. This is terrific. <laughs> they all think I'm such a big shot. Um, until I started talking to the kids, and I realized that most of them had no idea who I was. No. And had no idea what this book that I had done was. And I realized that I think it was like a classroom assignment to get as many signatures from authors <laughs> as possible. I love that, Nate. I really love that. I have to, I have to interject here for anybody who is among our listeners who are writers, new writers. I strongly recommend that you go to a book signing because nothing will teach you humility. No. <laughs> Yeah. More quickly, and uh, you know, I, the one of the few book signings I ever did was just what you described. There was a table, <clears throat> except at mine there was no class assignment, so you can just imagine how many people came right, to my table. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say none because that would be self self uh, diminishing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's part of you know paying your dues, which yes. is I think, a huge part of being freelance writer or being an author in that you know you do have to slog it out a bit you do but then you when know. you do get awards and industry recognition it is nice and and it is oh, absolutely. Uh, valued absolutely. but uh, I'm always interested in how it impacts your work and your motivation to keep going and it seems like you're very prolific so I don't think motivation is a problem for you no. at least um, I'm guessing well what keeps me extremely grounded is the fact that I am a full-time freelance writer and most of the writing I do is like for trade and business magazines. Yes. So I will go from, you know, being at this library conference and winning, you know, being nominated for awards and all this terrific stuff and the next day I'm writing about you know, winterizing your wheel loader or something. <laughs> the best way to extrude rubber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like My husband writes up. every single day. He's an economist, and he writes every single day for his business, so I know mm -hmm. exactly what you mean. And he's written four short story books just for fun, oh, just to fantastic. break that monotony, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it keeps you grounded, and it's the work that pays the bills. And I figure, you know, it, it's writing, you know, it's still it's still doing something I love. Uh, yes. And all the skills that I use for doing trade magazine, business magazine writing, you can apply to books, you know, be it interviews, research, yeah. um, all that sort of stuff. A common um, sense approach to the, to the literary world, really, I yes, think. Yes, you know, I mean, there much. are people out there who claim that if you truly love your art, you'd give everything up for it. I kind of think if you truly love your art, you're prepared to work and support yourself and yeah, support yeah. your art, you know? Yeah, there's, um, I always, uh, whenever I hear that, I always reference, there's a brilliant book by George Orwell, um, exactly about that, called Keep the Aspidistra Flying. <laughs> and that's, that's a reference to a plant, but that's a long story. But it's all about this guy who um, has decided he wants to be a poet, and he's completely miserable. Like, he works in a crappy, you know, used bookstore, and he's the most miserable git imaginable. But he's like, he's a dedicated artist. Uh -huh. he's, um, and at the end of the book, he, quote unquote, completely sells out and gets a job at an advertising agency and all of a sudden is much happier. And it's, um, it's shown to be sort of a degree of maturity. Yes. And that when he was obsessed with being a purist artist, you know, he was just the most miserable guy imaginable and the worst person to be around and was always sponging money off people. Yes. And yes. just lived in terrible conditions. And then, you know, it's sort of, so yeah, it's, I think, um, you know, I would love to be doing nothing but, you know, 
Well, we think we would. We think we would love that, but maybe we wouldn't. And the thing is, um, I'm I'm a big fan of George Orwell, and he had a tendency to write. Well, we all do. I've talked to a number of authors about how we do tend to write from our own experience, but he was pretty blatant about it. I mean, uh, his fiction was just rife with his own personal experience, which which is great. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And um, I think also, especially, it depends what age you are, that if, like, I've I've talked about before that, you know, when I eventually retire, which might not be till I'm, like, 80. <laughs> I'm on the Freedom 95 plan. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, if and when that happens, then I will sit down and write creative writing and true crime and only stuff I want to do. Yes. But to say that when you were, like, if I was back when I started, like at 25, it would have been totally insane. Yes. I would have, you know, starved very quickly. <laughs> Thank you. Let's let's be honest with listeners yeah, about yeah, what like, it is to be a writer. I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, unless you're like in Canada, unless you're like Margaret Atwood, you're not going to make in a, your living just solely from books. You yes. Know, period. Um, and people get angry. Doable. I was listening to Giles Blunt one time um, at one of the Bloody Words conferences, and um, I, I'm a big fan of Giles Blunt. I just love his work. And I was, he was talking about how people always ask him, um, what can I do to become a full-time writer? And he always says, just give that thought up. And he said one lady took him to task. She was really angry. She accused yeah, him of yeah. trying to crush her dreams. And, and uh, I mean... If you're Giles Blunt and you're saying a truth, people should listen. You know? well, plus, and plus, the other way to look at it, too, is that virtually every um, lousy job you might have to support yourself, you can write about later. Yeah. You know, like, it gives you experience and stuff to write about, whether you're a crime writer or whatever. So everything, for if you're a true writer, then everything is experience and it's all good in the end. Yes, so. yes, it's all fodder. That's what we, we've got to yeah, say. It's all yeah, fodder. And, yeah. you know, and, you know, I am full-time freelance writer, so, you know, it's like I am So you've kind of got it anyway, so that's terrific. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, networking. Now, I got to know you initially mm-hmm. because of professional networking, and I, I'm a big believer, and I'm always telling um, anyone who will listen that a big part of writing is getting out there. We're not just in our garrets. Um, it doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work for the modern writer. I'm not sure it ever did work. No, um, no. Yeah, I'm 100% with you because, like I said, um, I became a published author because of networking, because I belonged to PWAC, the Professional Writers mm-hmm. Association. Um, I've heard about multiple jobs, just word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently got a job doing business profiles solely because I was on a panel with a guy and he mentioned, oh, I write for this magazine and they're looking for writers. Um, that was my biggest surprise when I first started freelance writing mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. in the early 90s was how much the industry still relies on word of mouth. Yes, it really does. It really and, does. Which means getting to know people and you know having them respect your work. Um, people get this weird idea that networking means you know going to a cocktail party and oh, it's going just up nonsense. To people, Hi, how are you doing? You know, but it's just simply you know getting your name out there. Yeah, um, and, and to giving to that. your industry, giving something to your industry, too, because I think people really do remember that and respect mm-hmm. that. I mean, you weren't just a member of PWAC, but you also served as a Toronto chapter president, and yeah. I know that that kind of yeah. thing is a lot of work. You were also a vice president on the Canadian Crime Writers Board, uh, the yes, Crime indeed. Writers yes, of Canada. It's um, all, you know, it all helps you, you know, get to know people and help, you know, it's, some, it's nice to give back 
yes. in your own industry. Um, and just a quick tip to any newbie writers out there, I've been at events where I chat with you know up-and-coming fledgling writers, and I'm like, okay, do you have a business card? No. Do you have like any kind of, you know, like some, some young people like prefer to use, you know, phone, link, whatever. Yes, a link. No, they, have, they don't have that. Okay, do you have a website? No. Do you have a blog? No. <laughs> do you have email? Well, yeah, I have email, but I only use it for personal business, personal stuff. I and have I'm to like, tell well, you, what you're saying is really hurting my ears because I used to do workshops with my husband on mm-hmm. social media and platform building and that kind of thing. And I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of people who still don't get it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, yeah, it's like if you are... You know, there's certain what I call tools, and if you want to be a freelance writer, like obviously, and some of them are incredibly obvious, like telephone, yeah. um, and you know, computer, yes, or laptop or something. <laughs> but other stuff, you know, email. Obviously, you're going to need email. Um, mm-hmm. And if you want to have your name out there, the easiest way to do that is, you know, profile on LinkedIn. Some kind of, not necessarily like, you know, you can have either a paper business card or an electronic. Business card, or both. Here's a thought: something that if an you bump into an editor at a function and they say, "Hey, I hear you write about um, you're an expert on uh, oil rigs. I'd really like to get you to do a story. Can you give me your contact information?" And nothing is worse than if you go. Let me see. Has anybody got a pen? How about a scrap of paper? Let me just rip this off. Yes. Go to my LinkedIn profile. Um, yeah, and it's just like, unless, again, unless, you, uh, unless you've achieved some massive level of success, you're going to have to do some self-promotion. Yes. You know, period. Thank you, Nate, because that is exactly the tip I've been hoping somebody would raise. And uh, we did not plan this tip in advance, listeners, but it was the one I was going to raise myself in my next episode, if no author had, because platform building is critical to your writing career. I cannot emphasize that enough. And if you're not prepared to do it, then you're really not going to become a writer of any kind of merit. It's just not going to happen. So, sorry, that's the way it is. Yeah, that's, it's absolutely true, and especially nowadays, there's really no excuse because so much of social media is free. Yes. Like, you, you can build your own blog. Uh, like, I do, I have a blog at Word, uh, Word Pre- WordPress mm-hmm. where they, they give you the template. It's free. It's all if, free. Yeah, if, you, if, you know, LinkedIn, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, on Instagram, you know, it's all free, and you can use it, get your name out there, gotcha. find out interesting industry stuff. That's There's right. no reason not to be doing this. Doing and speaking this of speaking of technology as sort of the backbone of a lot of this, um, let me just tell you, listeners out there, if you're thinking of sending a publisher a manuscript by mail that you've handwritten <laughs> in a beautifully covered book, don't bother. If you have not transcribed that into a Word document, you're not going anywhere with it. Stick it yeah. in your sock drawer and keep it for your children to find because... It's not going anywhere until you can actually get on Word and tape mm-hmm. it up. So yeah, it's, I've heard most editors nowadays won't even accept um, like paper samples or resumes no. in the mail anymore. They'll just throw it like they won't even open it up. And no, just toss it in the garbage. Yeah, or, or recycling. 
Yeah. Always good to recycle this stuff. I spent years because uh, hubby and I started this business in 2010. Mm -hmm. And I spent years trying to be the typical polite Canadian and trying to get back to everybody and trying to, you know, trying to value everything that came my way. But I've, mm -hmm. I've decided in 2018 that honesty is always the best policy. And uh, yeah, yeah. especially in the face of the world we're seeing around us. And so I'm going to start telling anybody who wants to send, just please don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, other, another tip I would give, and this doesn't, this isn't true crime, but I've had a number. Of, you know, when you, when you get to a certain level of your, you know, writing, people start sending you manuscripts. Your best level, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. So I've had a number of people over the years send me manuscripts, and they say, "I know you're a crime writer. Would you be interested in looking at this?" Um, they're not hiring me to edit it, just to, you know, just to look at. Yeah. And I get really sick of, you know, any any crime stories about serial killers. I get really, I'm really kind of fed up with reading about mm -hmm. that are clearly written by some dude, like, you know, in his mom's basement kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's just sort of like basically, you know, you could tell this person's kind of getting off. And <laughs> it's kind of like, I really don't want to be reading this. And it's yes. just so ridiculous, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, try to come up with something more creative. Yeah, so not only that, but, Nate, you've raised a really good point. People are, when you do reach a certain recognition in the industry, even if you're not a um, hugely successful writer, but you still have a certain recognition in the writing business, um, mm -hmm. people are very fond of asking you to read their work. And I have to tell people, I have to caution you, that if you're just asking people to read your work because they're a nice person and you think they'll do it, it takes hours to get through a manuscript, mm -hmm. and that's hours that that person that you're asking this favor of can never get back or use for their own work, or unless you're willing to pay somebody for a professional critique, maybe limit what you're asking them to five pages. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's, can uh... you give me your thoughts on the initial opening or the first two chapters? That's fair game. I mean, everybody's looking for some kind of feedback, some kind of input. Mm -hmm. It's fair game, and they can say no, or I don't have the time if they want. But to ask somebody to read your whole manuscript, it's really not fair. Think how, how much time you would have to give to 10 or 12 people a month asking you to do that. Yeah, and then often they want a whole critique, and you yeah. know, they might get pissy if you and what like part did you book. like the most? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. but uh, yeah, I've, as I said, I have a you know personal bias uh, against in um, uh, crime literature against some. I can know, understand it. Overused genres, although in in nonfiction, I've, I'm currently reading a book about Canadian serial killers. It's excellent, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's sort of there's certain which one certain genres that work better in nonfiction. At least that's my little bias. Which one are you reading? Do you mind? Lee Meller. Uh, I was on a panel with him, and it's called uh, "Cold, Cold North Killers." Sorry, sorry, Lee, I just butchered your title. It's about Canadian serial killers, so it's very interesting. Yes, yes, some of them have got a pretty cold <laughs> outlook. Yeah, well, you know, the, the title is kind of like uh, quite literal in some cases. So. I can understand your bias because, like a lot of women. I don't like the let's put on a negligee and go get slashed up kind of genre. You know, I mean, uh, that tying sex to violence really, yeah, really yeah, does I, I bother me. I don't like to be a prude about it. People write what they write, and mm -hmm. I don't judge. 
but don't ask me to read a whole lot of that, you know. Let me change out of this sweater and jeans into a little see-through nighty and go down into the basement to investigate that noise. Um, right. Thanks, but, I, but no thanks, you know. I came up with this whole concept of, you know, you could write, like, um, a crime book or movie in which you have a serial killer and he only targets fat elderly men. Please. <laughs> like he's got some kind of weird grandfather issue. And he totally ignores the beautiful women and the non-negligees who are like, you know, damsels in distress. Totally ignores them and only targets, you know, these dopey-looking fat guys. Good, good. Because you know what happens to we damsels in distress? We become cranky, middle-aged women, and we're just going to kick your ass when you start throwing crap like that at us, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, if we're all lucky enough to live long enough, that's what we become. I mean, (laughs) you know. This is true. This is true, yeah, so... Honestly, I don't read a huge amount of crime uh, fiction, but um, even though I love, you know, Law and Order, the TV show, I do notice there's certain tropes that they seem to yeah. seem really obsessed yeah. with this sort of beautiful young corpse kind of thing. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think they do what they feel they have to do. I do love that program, though. I mean, oh, they can't make their minds up whether they're ripped from the headlines or whether they're based tro- uh, solely on the figment of the author's imagination. You know, they yeah, kind of go well, back and forth. Some of them are from the headlines. And, of course they are, yeah. Um, but it, that's the thing about crime is that, you know, with true crime is that some of the stuff is so weird and so out there that you you wouldn't believe it if it was presented in as fiction, like no. as a, a novel or a movie. Like you just say, oh, come on, there's no way. I know. What's the saying? You can't make this shit up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like um, yeah. you know, and that really comes home when you read true crime. So. Yes. Yes, exactly. Anyways, uh, Nate, I want you to please tell our listeners your website. Sure. Uh, the website is www.natehendley.com, and that's N-A-T-E-H-E-N-D-L-E-Y.com. And I have a blog uh, called Crime Story, which um, the easiest way to find that is just uh, crimestory.wordpress.com. Dot com, where I offer various uh, posts about my books, other people's books, crime issues, all sorts of exciting things. I, I did uh, have a good long visit with your website the other day, and I can tell people you're going to be pleased if you go there. There's a lot there to choose from, a lot to see, and please take a look at uh, the true crime books because there's a huge list of them, and um, and check them out. You know they're wonderful. And Nate, you're also on Facebook. Uh, yes, I am, and. Uh, Go to Facebook, look me up, Nate Henley, I'm on there. I'm also on LinkedIn and a few Google Plus and a few other places. Twitter, I have a um, Twitter account where I just uh, tweet about crime-related stuff. Well, what's hope. your handle on Twitter? Oh, man. Search me. Never mind. Never mind. My laptop in front of me. Uh, That's okay. Just search Nate Henley on Twitter. And in yeah, fact, if yeah. you want to come to Donna underscore Carrick, I'm going to find Nate, and I'm going to tweet him. So if you come there, and uh, you can find my tweet to Nate, and then you'll know where to find him. That's exactly. Always good to know where to find me. Yes, Maybe. yes. Thank you very much, Nate. That was terrific. I really think listeners are going to get a lot of that. Great, great. Okay, so I've been to Twitter. I've tweeted at Nate Henley, and that's N-A-T-E-H-E-N-D-L-E-Y. 
And I've told Nate what a terrific interview this was and thanked him. So if you'll all just go to at Nate Henley, you can find Nate on Twitter. And that was freelance journalist and true crime author Nate Henley on the Dead to Rights podcast. I want to thank Nate for joining us and for sharing his terrific insights into the book industry. And now I want to invite our deadly friends to our Dead to Rights Facebook page, where we have a contest going on. If you will correctly answer the question, what was Nate's number one tip for writers, then you'll win an Amazon gift certificate or a Smashwords gift certificate. You can take your choice. Just let me know which one would be most useful for you. And the answer to the question, just to make this really easy for our listeners, is you must build your platform. You must get involved and embrace the technology and network and build your platform as an author. And one example that Nate presented is when you go to an event, have a business card with you, some way to be able to introduce yourself to anyone you may meet there who may be interested in your work. So please visit the Dead to Rights Facebook page, all our deadly friends, and correctly answer the question in order to qualify to win the prize. It's been my honor to bring you Season 1, Episode 6 of Dead to Rights, the podcast, titled Spring's Last Skate. I hope you've enjoyed both the interview with Nate Hendley and the short story for our readers on the run, Spring's Last Skate. I would be remiss in my own marketing and platform building if I didn't tell you where you could find me. You can find Donna Carrick on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick. You can also find our Carrick Publishing Twitter handle, which is at Carrick Pub, or our Dead to Rights Twitter handle, which is at Dead to Rights Pod. That's D-E-A-D-T-O-W-R-I-T-E-S-P-O-D. We're on Facebook, all of our accounts, uh, Carrick Publishing, Dead to Rights, Donna Carrick, Alec Carrick, my husband, A-L-E-X Carrick. You can find us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Google+. Um, we're all over the place, so check us out, tune in, let us know what you think about the podcast. We really love sharing it with you. We hope you will subscribe either at iTunes or at Google Play Music. And please rate the podcast, because ratings really help podcasters and broadcasters to reach their listeners, which is what it's really all about. We just want to bring readers and writers together. This is a not-for-profit broadcast. I don't know if people are aware of that. Basically, I, Donna Carrick, and Carrick Publishing are doing this for love of the writing industry. So if you've got a favorite author, please support him or her. Please go to your favorite retailer and buy their book right now and rate it on Amazon or on Barnes & Noble or on Smashwords, wherever it is that you read and rate books, because those ratings help those authors immeasurably. As you've probably noticed from previous episodes, we don't only interview our Carrick Publishing authors. We're open to authors from all over the world. And um, if you're an author who would like to be interviewed, please email me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and put in your subject line, Dead to Rights, schedule me for an interview, and I'll be happy to consider doing so. Thank you.
dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it rock